Well, we are continuing our series today on these search patterns in our life. And uh, if you're just catching up on this series, we've been kind of focusing on this idea that our life is built out of different patterns uh, that we operate by. And so we, we see that in our life all the time, right? I mean, we say, if I, if I treat my wife this way, my marriage will be good. If I raise my kids this way, then you know, they will turn out all right. If I work hard at work, then I will get a promotion. And we, we operate by patterns, the if-thens of our life. If I do this, then this will happen. And these are emotional patterns, physical patterns, spiritual patterns that all play out in our life. And over the last two weeks, we've kind of laid the groundwork for some inner patterns. And we've looked at authenticity with God, about how do we actually be honest with who we are before God. And, and embrace the idea that God knows us. He knows us completely. And the freedom that comes with that, there's not fear with that, there's freedom with that. And then last week we looked at wisdom and how this getting this cycle of wisdom working in our life helps us not only just to discover wisdom, but to obtain wisdom and let it begin to impact how we think, our attitudes, and gives us a, a framework to which we can operate by. And so we basically, over the last two weeks, kind of laid some inside patterns and things that impact our internal life. And this week, we're beginning to look at a pattern called the pattern of righteousness, which righteousness begins to talk about how we express things out in our life. So it's now that we've got these two patterns in our life, how is it going to affect how we begin to act and how we begin to show righteousness out to others? I want to remind you the last two weeks because these patterns go together. We aren't going to be righteous people. We aren't going to have the patterns of righteousness in our life if we aren't authentic and submitting to God and respecting God for who he is. We're not going to have patterns of righteousness in our life if we're not obtaining and searching after and calling out for wisdom. These are patterns that go together. It reminds me, Katie's mom, uh, she makes these quilts all the time. I'm sure you've seen a quilt. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody make a quilt. But I've seen Katie's mom go through their work of making a quilt. And it's not just saying, oh, I'm going to use this one pattern, and that's the way it's going to turn out. She plans out multiple patterns, multiple ways that stitches are done, multiple cuts of fabrics, that once she puts it all together, it becomes this beautiful, beautiful picture and beautiful image that you would say, that, you know, that was just a triangle of fabric, or that was this kind of stitch. But when they all come together... It creates this beautiful, finished product. And that's what happens when all of these patterns start interacting in our life, when authenticity, wisdom, and righteousness begin to play out in our life. We see this beautiful image come together. So let's talk about righteousness, because that's a term that we've, if you've been around church much, you've heard that term before. We should be righteous people. God is a righteous God. And so what is righteousness. Honestly, when we first think about it, we probably begin to think that righteousness is about actions and behaviors, right? We start thinking, it's good things that I do. It's good deeds. And, and we start weighing the good versus the bad. And like, as long as I'm doing a little bit more good than bad, maybe I'm considered righteous. You know, I'm in the positive. And, but if I see the negative start to show up in my life, I got to, I got to balance that out with some good deeds. And, and what happens in our life, it ends up being this seesaw, doesn't it? I mean, where it's like just back and forth, like today was a bad day. So tomorrow I've got to do good. And man, I've done good 
all week, so this weekend I can be bad. You know, we just kind of go back and forth and back and forth, and we, we view righteousness as this balance. And, and what happens on a seesaw when you're stuck up in the air and somebody gets off the other end? You end up crashing straight to the ground, and that's often what happens in our life when we think that righteousness is just about these acts and behaviors that we end up thinking we've got it all together, we've been doing good, but then something happens in our life and we crash. And that's not what righteousness is. And as a matter of fact, this type of thinking leads us to the mindset of what I would say is self-righteousness. And we live by thinking we need to be self-righteous. And self-righteousness is actually thinking that it's up to me to do enough good to please God or to please other people. It's up to me. I've got to keep the scales positive. And self-righteousness usually leads to one of two directions. It leads to either pride, where I sit here and I, I go, look at all the good I've done. I am great, you know, and I, I'm puffed up with pride because I can list for you all the great things that I've done. I'm self-righteous because I have done my good deed for today and yesterday, and I've got a string of 20 days of doing good deeds, right? I mean, we just think of it. In that way, and when we do that, it, we become prideful. It becomes about us. We make ourselves the central figure of our lives and the lives of others, and it becomes about me. The other thing that self-righteousness can lead to is not pride. It can lead to despair, right? Because what if I don't have 20 days of good deeds? i got a string of 20 days of, of bad days in my life, of bad deeds in my life, and I'm like, there's no way I can climb out of this hole. Like, look at what I've done. I can tell you as a pastor, oftentimes when I meet people and we start talking about who God is and and how Christ is ready to offer forgiveness, one of the first things they say to me is, you don't know what I've done. I I can't be forgiven. God could not forgive me for the things I have done in my life. And that's actually self-righteousness. It's showing through despair. We lose hope. We see no way out. We give up and we just give in. And at the same time, what is it? it still becomes all about me. And so self-righteousness is a self-focused faith. And that is not what we're talking about today. When he talks about calling out for righteousness, that is not what we're talking about. And so what is righteousness? According to Scripture, self-righteousness isn't something to be sought after. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah, it says our righteousness is like what? Filthy rags. It's 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 useless, worthless. Paul says in Romans that no one is righteous, not even one. There's no one in here who, I don't care how many deeds you have, it's still, you're not righteous before God. So if righteousness isn't about good deeds, then what is it? The Bible teaches that righteousness is not performing good deeds, but it is instead about embracing God's desires for our life. Setting aside good deeds, are we supposed to do good? Yes, and we'll get to that. But the idea is that it's embracing God's desires to begin with. It's when, we, when these desires begin to flow through our lives and eventually come out as the desires of our own heart. That's how we were designed. We were designed to be literally this funnel for God's righteousness to flow through us and impact other people. It's not that we're doing good deeds. It's that God's desires are so flowing into our life that they cannot help but be expressed out other people think about it this way with we you know a water hose what use is a water hose 
if it's not ever really connected to the faucet. You, you can walk around with a water hose and try to water things, but if it's not plugged into the source, it's never going to accomplish its job. Or if it's got holes all in it and it's, it's kinked all along the way, it's not going to accomplish what it's supposed to. But when it's connected to the source and it has integrity along its line, then it accomplishes what it was designed to do. And that's the same true in our lives. As we get connected to God and his righteousness then flows through us and we live a life of integrity, then it's able to flow out and impact other people. Righteousness then is a byproduct of submission and surrender. That's it. It's submitting, it's attaching ourselves to God and then allowing it to flow through us. It's submission and surrender. It's embracing the idea that true love, true goodness, true kindness, true forgiveness, they do not flow from my heart, but they flow from God's heart through me. That's what righteousness is. It's embracing God's desires for our life, setting ourselves under his authority. And so to understand righteousness a little bit better, I want us over the next few minutes to take a look at Scripture and what Scripture has to say about righteousness. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to start in Matthew 6, verse 33. And this is a, uh, it's a verse that many of us know. I, I grew up, one of the first verses that I memorized was Matthew 6, 33. Uh, I've often heard, heard it taught in many different ways. Uh, but we're going to start at this verse, and uh, then we're going to look at a Proverbs that kind of, I mean, a Psalms that attaches to this. So Matthew 6, 33 says this, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. Now, let me give you a little context on this teaching. Jesus says this right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. One of his most best teachings, his most profound teachings, this is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And what he has done is he has basically, right before this, if you go back and look at the chapters before this, he has done all kind of teachings. He's talked about how to deal with anger, lust, greed, integrity, how to love your enemies, how to give to the needy, how to pray, how to fast, how to handle worry. And so he has given us this laundry list of how-tos. And, and I don't know about you, but if I'm sitting there, and I, even when I read Matthew 5 and 6, when I read through all that, I'm like, man, that's tough. Like, that's a, that's a lot to try to live up to. Like, I, I'm not supposed to lust. I'm not supposed to get greedy about things. I'm not supposed to even get angry, not even angry at my, my enemies. I have to love my enemies. I have to do all this kind of stuff. Like, wow. And, and what Jesus does here is miraculous. Because right in the middle of this, he stops and he says this. He says, all these things, all these things I just talked about, how do you do those? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all of these things, all these things that he's, oftentimes when I've heard this taught, I, I hear it taught out of context. And it's basically, if you seek God and his righteousness, everything that you want in your life is yours. But we have to look at this in context. What he's saying is, look, if you seek God and his righteousness, the desires begin to line up and you have the ability then to overcome lust, overcome greed, overcome anger, overcome hatred. Those begin to naturally happen. All of these things then will be added to you. This is how you do it. It's by embracing his righteousness and his kingdom. He simplifies everything. These actions don't result in righteousness. They're a result of God's righteousness in 
our lives. You catch the difference? Because if we think it's these things determine whether we're righteous, it gets back to self-righteousness, right? All right, then how do I not be greedy, lustful, prideful, all these kind of, it's just a to-do list. Jesus says, no, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And then out of that, you will have the ability to do these things. Jesus here is literally give us a new way to see righteousness, a complete shift in our perspective. He is helping us to see how understanding righteousness will change how we interact with the world, how we see the world, and how we see God. Now, about the time I was in middle school, I was one of these kids, I loved to sit in the back of the room for obvious reasons. I like, you know, you could get away with things in the back of the room and stuff like that. But I remember one day, like I'm sitting in the back of the room and the teacher's writing something on the board and I couldn't read it. Like I couldn't see it. Like it was got blurry. It was like, I can't see this. And it was just like, my vision was starting to go down. My parents took me to the doctor and I needed glasses for the first time. And literally I got to the point by my end of my high school year, I was if I didn't wear glasses, I would have been considered legally blind. Like, I couldn't see a stop sign. I could see this red thing on the side of the road, but I couldn't, I didn't know that it would say stop. But I remember the first day I put glasses on, and all of a sudden, everything else came into better perspective, and I could see. And then a few years ago, I got LASIK. And that was like a miracle of God, right? I mean, it was like, oh, you know, I don't have to put drops in my eyes every day. I don't have to put these things in my eyes every day. I wake up, and I can see, and I can see all day with perfect vision. I went from being like legally blind without glasses to now having 2015 vision. I'm getting old again, though, so if it's still close, I can't read it. I have to have my notes far away from me. But, but I, to be able to see is amazing. And what happens here in Matthew 6, and what we're going to see through the remainder of our time, is God literally gives us a set of glasses to help us better understand righteousness and understand how to respond to him and others. He is changing our sight. He is literally giving sight to the blind. He is helping us to see things that we can't see without him. And so I want us to understand how these two lenses of the kingdom of God and his righteousness play out. So when it says first, seek the kingdom of God, Jesus' teaching here is reminding us that our vision doesn't need to just focus on the physical earthly world but it needs to focus on things beyond us. Instead of embracing just current reality, we need to embrace the idea and understand the idea that there is something bigger going on, that there is something beyond us. God's kingdom is about two things, redemption and restoration. That's what God's kingdom is about. It is bringing redemption to mankind and restoring things to the way they were originally be. And so when we think about seeing things through the kingdom of God, it's understanding it isn't about us. It isn't about me. It's about us and our relationship to God. That's what the kingdom of God is. What is about, what does it mean, his righteousness? He says we should seek his righteousness. The second lens gives us a new perspective of looking at the world through his righteousness. And what this means is this, is we get to embrace the idea that we are not the rule makers. We are not the ones that can bring hope and peace into this world without the righteousness of God playing out in our lives. I want you to hear that for a minute because it's real easy to think that we as people can solve the problems of the world. Like if we can just get together, if we can just 
fight this injustice, if we can move forward, we can solve the ills of this world. Well, you know, history tells us different, right? When we look at all of human history, we have not really gotten any closer to a, a full, peaceful world. Man doesn't solve man's problems. The only way we can solve problems is having something bigger than us that has the righteousness of God come into our lives. And God's righteousness is based on purity and holiness. His heart is always full of love. His motives are always pure, and his character is always worthy. So how does this play out in our lives? What happens when we start to look at the world through these lenses of God's kingdom and his righteousness? Got your Bible, flip over to Psalms chapter 15. Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible. And this psalm is a connecting passage to Matthew 6. And so Matthew 6 talks about his kingdom and his righteousness. Well, there's a psalm that basically explains how this plays out in our life. And so I want to start by looking at the first two verses here in Psalm 15, 1 and 2. And it says this, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? It is he who walks blamelessly and, and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. And so we see two things here. We see a kingdom of God lens and we see a righteousness lens. The kingdom of God, he's saying, who will join me in the dwelling place? Who can come up where you are? The writer here is basically asking this question. We want to be part of what you're part of. God. We want to be part of your kingdom. How do we do it? Who can do that? And this first lens, this kingdom of God, the way it plays out in our life is it creates desire. We have this desire to know God. Oftentimes when I'm talking to people and as I'm talking and I see that their spiritual background, maybe they, they don't believe in God or maybe they have questions about God. They really are struggling with understanding who God is. I'll often get to a point in the conversation where I ask a question and it's this, do you at least have a desire to know God? Because if we have a desire to know God, then we have an opportunity to move forward in that relationship. And that's what's, when we have a kingdom of God lens, it's basically saying, I have a desire to know God and know more about him. I, I don't know what your favorite hobby may be, but whatever it is, when you first get ingrained in that hobby, what do you want to, you want to do it all the time, right? You want to learn as much as you can about it, anything that you can get your hands on, anything you can read, anything that you just excites you or will educate you about that hobby, and you jump into it full on. I remember the first time we're coming up on football season. I remember the first time I played fantasy football. Like, I used to follow a couple of football teams, but the first time I played fantasy football, if you don't know what fantasy football is, it's like a grown-up version of, uh, I don't, like, it's just men and women getting together and, like, wishing we still played football, but all we can do is follow the people on the TV, so it helps us get involved with the game. Uh, but I, I remember watching, man, I started reading about all kinds of different players. I learned more about teams. I knew position players better than anybody, because, man, it was exciting. I mean, I was learning as much as I could. And it, it was just anything I could get my hands on, I'd put my hands on. And that's the way our desire should be when we say, you know, I really desire to know about the kingdom of God. You desire to know that. But then there's the righteousness lens, right, where it says here in verse 2, who can, who can come to your hill, who can be in your dwelling place? It's those who walk blamelessly, do what is right, speaks the truth. But when I read that, okay, I say, you know, okay, I'm out. 
That's not me. I can't do these things. I thought you said it wasn't about what I did. And it's not. It's about what Christ has done. And it's understanding this. As much as we have this desire to know God, this righteousness lens means that we understand that we are in need of salvation. We need salvation. This is not something we can do ourselves. This list right here, to walk blamelessly, speak the truth, do what is right, I fall short of that every day. And so it's not just struggling to do better. It's understanding that can only be done by embracing salvation through Christ. And seeing life through God's righteousness brings me to admit that I am in need of salvation. So when we put these lenses on of God's kingdom and his righteousness, it's actually saying this, I desire God and his salvation. I need his salvation. And that changes how we look at everything. It changes everything. Because if we're putting on the lenses of self-righteousness, what are we saying? What can I do to please God so that I can make him desire me? And then puff myself up to try to make myself look good so that I'm trying to provide salvation for myself. And when I do that, I look at the world a whole different way. I look at me a whole different way. And I look at you a whole different way. But when I put on the lenses of desiring to know God and knowing that I need his salvation, it will change the way I looked at this world drastically. And that's what I want us to spend the rest of our time doing is looking through these last few verses of Psalms 15 and seeing how this actually plays out in our life. Like, how does this go from, yeah, okay, desire salvation, that's a great thought, but like, what does this actually mean? How does this actually play out in my life? So look at Psalm chapter 15, verse 3, and it says this. So he's saying, who can do this? Who will desire God? Who will desire salvation? It is one, he who does not slander his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend. But the first thing when we put these lenses on is it helps us see relationships differently. We see relationships differently. I start looking at how I relate to you and how you relate to me very differently. And he lays out here a framework of how this happens. He says the first thing we do when he says, you know, we do not slander with our tongue is that we learn to encourage others. And we stop using words to tear down others and instead find ways to encourage and strengthen them instead. Do you remember that saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words will never hurt me. That's a lie, isn't it? That's a horrible lie. Some of the most hurtful things I've ever experienced in my life are words that people have said to me. I'm like, I almost would have rather you beat me up than, than you just say that to me. Physical wounds heal a lot quicker than emotional wounds, don't they? And I, I, again, I just, I'd rather sometimes carry a black eye than a broken heart. And words hurt. And this is why he's saying, look, we can't use our If you're seeking to know God and to experience his salvation, you can't use your words to slander. You encourage others. But the second thing he says here when he says that, you know, you speak does no evil toward his neighbor is that we learn to elevate others. We don't just encourage them. We elevate them. We stop using our actions to bring evil into the lives of others. And instead, we understand, we embrace this idea. Life is not a competition. We have been taught that, haven't we? We have been taught, look, even if I like you, I got to do better than you. I got to finish ahead of you. I mean, that's 
We just celebrated two weeks of the Olympics where it's all about competition and finishing ahead, right, and being number one. And we were watching the soccer game last night. I don't know if you saw the gold medal. and It went down to penalty kicks. The very last penalty kick, Brazil won. You know, it was an amazing thing. And, you know, Brazil is cheering and Germany is crying. And it's like one kick and all of a sudden everybody's life has changed dramatically. And I don't think Brazil was trying to put evil into Germany maybe after their World Cup when they got killed 7-1. to one. I mean, they were like, we're wanting some evil to them. But, but the idea is this. We walk in our lives like we're playing this sport and we're competing with each other. And I need to win. I, I don't care that you finish. I just need to finish ahead of you. And that's not what God says that we need to do. He says, understand, this is not a competition. It's actually a community of people that we are trying to embrace redemption and experience redemption together. We don't want to leave anyone behind. We want to elevate everybody's value. And the idea is this. We've got to learn to do life together. Not by ourselves. Not ahead of others. Not behind of others. But do life together. He says, don't just encourage and elevate others. He finally says here that we should not take up reproach against his friend, which means that we should esteem one another. We add value. We stop viewing others as objects to be used for our own personal gain, and we see them as God's creation with true value and worth, that everyone sitting in here are joint heirs with Christ. We all have equal access to God. It's not that, you know, I'm, I may be farther along in my journey with God than you are. You may be further along than I am. You may be just see, here. Where we are in our journey does not determine our value to God. Just because I've been a follower of Christ longer doesn't mean that I'm more valuable to God than maybe somebody who's just beginning to ask questions. Value doesn't come by our proximity. It comes by the fact out of God's character that he loves and values each of us. And that's the key idea is that we've got to learn to value each person. But this, when we start to receive relationships differently, we start to speak love to one another. We start to do life together and we start to see value in every person. And so we see relationships differently when we're looking through these lenses of the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But look in verse 4. Psalms 15 verse 4 it says this. Who else can, can do this? In those in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Here's what we see in verse 4. It's not that we just see relationships differently, but we start to see reputation differently as well. It changes what we see as important. So look where he says, here's you know, those that are vile. We become adverse to those that are conceited. We become adverse to conceit. We don't like conceit. And when, when it says a vile person here is to be despised, it doesn't mean that we need to hate somebody that we don't agree with or somebody that's self-centered. Here, here's what it means, is that we don't elevate somebody who is self-absorbed, self-centered, and self-righteous. That's not who we hold up as the example. But boy, isn't our culture great at doing that? Isn't reality TV great at doing that, of holding up people that are self-centered, self-absorbed, and self-righteous and saying, isn't this what we all strive to be? I mean, we, I don't care what reality show you're talking about. That's the... It's the self-centered people battling with other self-centered people. That's not what God's called us to. And it's this idea that we should not strive 
for prestige. Now, to be known and be prestige, that's not a bad thing, but if that is our goal, to strive for prestige, then we are, we're not adverse to conceit because it becomes about ourselves. And that's what he's saying, that whose eyes of a vile person is despised, that we don't want that. We are not about elevating ourselves. A vile heart is one that's self-focused, and we should not idolize that. But it says not just that, but when it says that then honor those who fear the Lord, is that we should then learn to admire the humble. Admire the humble. Instead, God calls us to admire those who set self aside and embrace the fear of the Lord, submitting to the Lord. And that's shown through humble surrender and submission. And this is when we keep God and others as the focus of our life. Instead of turning our view on ourselves with a conceited view, a humble heart turns their view on to others and how that impacts their life. So it would be adverse to conceit, be admire the humble, but he says finally here, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, which means we strive for integrity. That when he, said, when he says there to, to swear to his own hurt, really means that like you're going to keep a commitment even when it costs you. You're not like, you're saying, oh, I promise to do this as long as it doesn't cost too much. No, when I make a commitment, when I promise, I'm, I'm unwavering. And it's this idea, what he's saying between these two views, as we as people who are seeking righteousness, we don't waver back and forth. We don't go to esteeming those that are conceited and then like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And we come back and esteem those that are humble and then we are obsessed by this again and, and we're flowing back and forth. He said, no, have strong convictions. Plant yourself in the convictions of God. And don't go back and forth. And that's how we strive for integrity is to develop convictions. Quickly, let's look at verse 5 and we'll end with this. He says then, again, who, how else do we do this? How else do we have these kingdom lenses? Verse 5, it is he who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. And so this will change not only how we view relationships, uh, but it will change how we view our resources and how what God has given us. And the first part, when we see in the first part of verse 5, when it says we do not put our money out for interest, what it says is this, is we value people over profit. We begin to value people. We esteem people and understand they are the greatest resource, not, not money. And we don't use our money to make money off of other people. Does that mean we shouldn't invest our money? No. Does it mean it's wrong to have money? No, that's not what he said. But he says when you put your money out to earn interest off of it, well, you're intentionally trying to keep people down and you are earning money off of them. It's not right. Instead of using people to make a profit, we should use our profits to impact the lives of people. What God's given us. True, I want you to understand, the truest and most worthy value is in relationships, not in the size of your checking account. In relationships. But then he says here, then don't, you know, do not take out a bribe against the innocent. And what he means by this is we should seek justice instead of wealth. It's not that our lives should be consumed by creating much wealth and as much worth as we can in ourselves. Instead, we should seek justice. You know, we probably, if I took a poll in here of like, hey, who wants to embrace the ideas of impression, injustice, and slavery? Nobody's going to raise their hand. Nobody, oh, that's me, you know, no. Now, we would say, no, we're against those things. But it's not enough to just say we're against those things. 
It's actually that we should work to stop those things. I can, I can make a statement, I don't like injustice. I don't like poverty. I don't like oppression. But it's until that I seek to use my resources to stop those things, that's when my lens has changed. Most everybody would tell you those are bad. But it's not just saying they're bad. It's doing something to impact. And it's understanding this idea that God's grace is available to all. The, the, the weak, the, the poor, the, those that have been marginalized, God's grace is available to everybody. And then the last thing when he says here is, he who does these things shall not be moved. It's helping us to understand this, that we see resources differently, that we elevate character over circumstances. You know, we spend so much of our time trying to avoid difficult circumstances, and we even make that our prayer. Like, God, would you take this away from me? Would you help me have more money to do this? Well, we start praying things about circumstances. But I want you to hear something very clearly this morning. God does not promise comfort. Nowhere in the scripture does God promise comfort. Instead, what he does promise is character development. That as we go through these circumstances, as we face good times and bad, God wants to use the circumstances to grow our character. But we should put as much effort into growing our character as we do in growing our bank account. And we should find value in every experience. Whatever experience you face, you can find value in that experience. So my question for you today is two things. One is this. If you're just beginning to search and ask questions about God, I would ask you this. Do you desire salvation? You desire, is that a lens you are at least willing to begin to look through? To seek God's kingdom and his righteousness and see how you can experience the world differently through those lenses. And then my next question is this. How are you looking at the world? Even if you're a follower of Christ, have you maybe taken off those lenses and you're just looking at it in your own way again? With a self-righteous spirit and your own kingdom in the center. You know, it's easy to slip on the lens of self-righteousness and personal gain when we're not careful. And when we do that, our view of God and our view of this world grows cloudy. And so today, will you embrace the idea of living your life through the lenses of God's kingdom and his righteousness and start to see your relationships, our view of reputation, and how we handle resources differently? you pray with me?